Hello, mates, and welcome to A Country Podcast, where we watch what is arguably the most accurate dramatisation of Australian life ever made. And I'm not talking about the Hugh Jackman and Nicole Kidman film, Australia. I'm talking, of course, about a country practice. I'm Melanie Tate. I'm a playwright and a journalist. And with me, as always, is podcast producer and Australia's foremost Molly Jones impersonator, Kim Lester. Hello, Kim. Hello, Mel. I almost wrote a joke in there and I thought, no, I'll just say it. And I have no (laughs) idea what I was going to (laughs) write. Sounded like it was a funny joke. It would have been so funny. For sure. (laughs) Kim, we have got a cracker of a guest today. We've talked a lot about her character in our last episode, and so I'm so excited. The woman who first gave redheads real representation on television, Dr. Alex Fraser, Diane Smith. Yeah, she was so generous with her time, and God, she was good to chat to. So we're giving you a bonus extended version Half an hour of gold, Mel, like half an hour worth keeping. But since we don't want this show to go for two hours, we're giving you a little bit into the episode today and then next week we'll release the rest of it. An early Christmas present. So, Kim, what's our episode today? We've watched episodes 15 and 16 from season nine, which are Diane Smith's last episodes as a cast member. She'll be back for a couple of guest spots, but can you give us the recap, Mel? Kim, I'd love to. Guest character Steve Murray, who's played by Gary Foley, the Aboriginal pastor who married Joe and Michael an episode or two ago, has invited Alex to spend three months working in his community. Now, she's really intrigued and she's keen to go where she's needed. She keeps talking about that. She finds the um, day-to-day medical dramas of Wandon Valley quite trite in comparison. She's also realising that her marriage to Terence is the only thing keeping her in Wandon Valley. Meanwhile, Joe and Michael have moved to Armadale and Frank and Shirley are listless, empty nesters. And while Frank's just trying to move on in his frank way, Shirley's depression manifests in the most surprising of Shirley habits, shoplifting. And Bob and uh, Cookie shenanigans involve a hunt for gold, an act of revenge and some dynamite. Kim, it's a bonkers episode. We're going to get to Terrence and Alex in a moment, but what did you make of Shirley's shoplifting? It's funny you say that that's the most surprising thing she could do. I feel like original Shirley totally would have gone down that path. The Shirley who used to sit under the pyramid smoking ciggies and drinking wine probably did partake in the occasional swipe. But I reckon she would have had a political reason for it. You know, she would have been like evening things out with the man, but not Shirley married to a copper. Yeah, no, Shirley, the Shirley who's married to Frank and fostering the likes of Joe and Luke, I don't really see as a shoplifter, but she has a real illness. I can't remember the name of it, but it's basically her depression at Joe leaving. She doesn't even quite realise she's doing it, does she? No, she sort of goes into a trance. I had a real laugh out loud moment at Esme's reaction to it. Because, of course, she shoplifts one day when she's with Esme. Yeah, she was with Esme and Esme was so scandalised. She doesn't seem to know that it's happened at all. I don't know what to do. It's like a nightmare. (laughs) But she also handled it. Like, the way that she handled it was so Esme, wasn't it? It was... She basically took the blame. Yeah. So, what happens is Shirley uh, steals this really fancy camera from the chemist. Remember when chemists had things like cameras (laughs) and 
<laughs> stuff and like that. And the camera was $250. Yes, yeah, $250. So the chemist thinks that it's Esme. And Esme, instead of saying, no, it was Shirley, she doesn't ever admit to doing it. No. But she just brings her checkbook and she pays for the camera. And yes. oh, like in a just yet another beautiful step in the development of Esme Watson. Esme season two would not have paid for that. She would have told the whole town about <laughs> Shirley's little uh, shoplifting habit. Oh. Esme season nine, though, completely evolved. Do you think Esme season nine, over those sort of seven or eight years, she's become involved in Buddhist meditation? <laughs> she's been... <laughs> She's been reading self-help books about being a good community member and giving love before, you know, anything else. And that's who we see. I think Esme's been on an eat, pray, love journey. (laughs) She 100% has. Yeah. I think we need to investigate that further, find out where she went for her journey, what she ate, who she's praying to. Absolutely. What did you think of Frank's reaction to Shirley's shoplifting, which involved taking her to Burrigan, getting her uh, charged and seen to by a court? Nobody other than Frank wanted that. The pharmacist didn't want to press charges. The medical advice was that (laughs) this is a disease. This is not a criminal act. It's, it's, she's not well. But Frank was insistent that he had to charge her because that's the law. What was going on though that Frank seemed to have no clue about was Bob and Cookie blowing up a cave that a person was inside of. Kiss farewell to the Chateau Bordel. No, not my wine! Donkey, don't! <laughs> That seemed to me much more worthy of local police <laughs> attention. <laughs> Yet it got none because he was putting his own wife in front of a judge, yeah. albeit in a closed court. Yes. You know what? Oh, gosh, Kim, I just hate it as I get older. I think I become more like Javert from Les Miserables nah. than Valjean. <laughs> and I've got to admit there's something in me that was thinking, well, of course, Frank has to show the full hand of the law to his wife. Otherwise, he's a corrupt country cop yeah i know that everybody didn't want any charges to be laid or anything like that but Mm. i didn't see how frank could get out of it and i feel like it was all worked out really sensitively you know that no one really knew about it except for the pharmacist and esme and terence and and they're not going to tell anybody they all love shirley desperately yeah so i i didn't feel like he had much other choice so kim in um summary i find myself continually warming more to Frank yeah. as the series goes on, which is just the most weird feeling on the face of the earth. And I'm looking forward to next week probably being so far enmeshed with Frank and the policeman that I've got a version of Javert's stars ready to sing. <laughs> All right, let's talk about Terence and Alex. That's the real juice in this episode, mm-hmm. I think. In our last episode, you and I discussed Alex's reaction to Sophie and her behaviour towards Terence. And I was quite understanding of the way Alex was behaving in the last episodes. and You were. Now, i got to tell you, I am a card-carrying member of Team Alex. Wow. Terence needed to pull his head in this week. He was behaving so poorly. She's going to stay, you know. She's going to cut her conscience in half for you. I'm not the keeper of Alex's conscience. I'm her husband. And don't accuse me of manipulating her. I haven't. I've left the decision entirely up to her. Yes, that's a masterstroke, isn't it? I'd like to counter that. 
Okay. And I know I quite often come down on the side of our grey-haired Adonis. But <laughs> the let silver me fox. So, the silver fox. Let me do so again. So Alex is like 23 years old or however young she is. And <laughs> she's, she's full of adventure. Terence is nearing 50. He's set himself up in Wandon Valley. He's got a really nice life, complete with a nice young wife. He's just lost the second of his... No, he's lost... Three kids by now. He's lost the yes. Alex baby, he's lost Sophie, and he lost his first baby before we even meet him. Remember yes. his first son? So he's lost three out of his four children. I think we need to give the guy some slack that he might just want a stable life without much change. He sure. just wants a nice life. So this is where I'm going to be team Terrence. Okay, but he doesn't express any of that to Alex. He doesn't communicate with her at all, and that's my problem with Terrence is he's a bad communicator. He's a very bad communicator, you're right, yeah. He's an 80s man. He doesn't know how to have difficult conversations. And Matron Sloan calls him out for it towards the end of, I think, episode two. Alex has been, oh, you know, she's been given this offer to go and make a real difference. And there's a lot of pressure in the offer, you know. Steve Murray is not pussyfooting around with that offer. He oh, is basically yeah. saying, you need to do this. We need you. This is where you're needed. And Alex feels that pull. Mm -hmm. She definitely feels the pull of that. And she's, you know, she's getting mail from pharmaceutical reps that she's really resents and she's getting pressure from the local pharmacist to up the medication. And all of a mm -hmm. sudden, all of her patients want medication for nothing and they don't appreciate being told <laughs> to, be you know, funny. have a lem sip and lie down <laughs> with a cold. You know, like she's getting really fed up with the trivial problems. The middle classness yes. of it all. Yeah. And so I think she's like, would you say that it wouldn't be her first job, but it's probably pretty early on in her career yeah. that she came to Wandon Valley. So she's come, she's met the love of her life there. She's gotten married. But, I mean, I don't know that I would have been ready to just call it a day with developing no. my career at 31. I think I'd feel pretty disappointed if that was that. And, again, these are the conversations you have to have when you marry a person. Totally. And certainly as well. <laughs> I don't know whether they would have in TV land or whether, you know, like half of me always thinks, yes, why didn't that they have these conversations? And then you think, well, because this isn't real life and it's a yes. drama that's written by people. It's because Diane Smith was ready to leave the show. Yes, and, exactly. Um, Shane she Porteous was not. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And they had to keep him there and uh, send her yonder. But, you know, yeah, I can understand it from that point of view. And it would be like as a young doctor, you'd want to do those things. And she only at this stage wants to go for three months. Yes. So it actually, I mean, in real life, I don't know whether it would be that much of a drama no. about somebody going for three months. Like you yeah. just say, yeah, sure, mate, I go. Know. We live in the FIFO age now where exactly. people are away from their partners two weeks on, two weeks off. And, yeah. you know, like three months away is really, there's it's not nothing. Much to it. Yeah. I've seen the episodes with her. Have you watched them? No. The episodes with her off. So they go to a community and film mm -hmm. a couple of episodes while she's there. It's definitely not a fly in, fly out environment. And it gets to the point where she's, I mean, she feels very much at home there. It's her calling. It's where mm. she's meant to be. And she tries to convince old mate, you know, to blow up his life and, yeah. and come with. I don't know. I don't know if it's getting older, Kim, but- before when we've talked about these episodes, just you and I in our personal yep. private time. Yep. As, <laughs> as we do. Just on the phone on a Saturday night. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Maybe we should start recording those. Is You know, back in the olden days, I used to think, oh, I would go anywhere for love. You know, it wouldn't mm. matter where I was, etc. But as I get older, I kind of like I can see his reluctance 
to change his life so completely. Like when he gets to the doctor's surgery there, like, and we'll probably do these episodes, so we won't talk about yeah. much. One of the great things they do with these episodes, because these episodes were very much guided by the actor Gary Foley, which we'll talk about a little bit later in this episode. Like they've barely got the basics in their little clinic. They're so under resourced. Like you could just see that being so frustrating for somebody like Terence, who wants order and a nice life and mm. has set up his Wandered Valley practice. So, uh, yeah, I, I tell you what, Kim, I love that you're card carrying Alex after this. And I am in principle, I think, because she goes off and helps an Aboriginal yeah. community. And how beautiful is that? Yeah. And she finds herself in doing so. Yes. That's, you know, what we find out later on, which is so wonderful. Yeah. But I don't know. Had she given that opportunity up for him? Had she spent the rest of her life in Wandon oh, Valley? Yeah. What would that marriage have been? I mean, maybe maybe mm. they would have worked it out, you know, these two fictional characters. <laughs> They didn't want to pursue different <laughs> acting opportunities. Maybe they would have had better luck with their next baby because Judith Cahoon would have been offered a box of wine and yes, <laughs> and and written the death of of that baby character. Who knows? Yes. So she's now devoting her life out at the community, which is beautiful. Yeah. I hope she's still there. I hope imaginary Alex is still at that community. She's probably a leader in Indigenous health by now, and she will have got that place properly funded. Although. That's a real white saviour story. And as, oh, yeah. as we're about to discuss in my little history section, it's not necessarily the direction that Indigenous health policy wants to go. What a great segue, Kim, to go off and talk about what was going on in uh, the world during the filming of these episodes. Righto, Kim, can you please take us back to Australia circa 1989? What was going down? Once again, I don't know what dates these episodes went to air. I think it was March-ish. 1st of January, Hex was introduced with the commencement Boo. of the Higher Education Funding Act. It was set up as both major parties agreed that uh, free tertiary education in Australia was unaffordable. Boo! Boo! After they all had their education yeah. paid for post-golf. <laughs> exactly. Boo! Oh, my gosh, that's so interesting. So, we're, we're getting into some politics now that aren't directly influenced by golf. No, no, we are, we are in the thick of the hawk years now. In March, Prime Minister Bob Hawke wept on national television as he admitted marital infidelity. Because we all know that Hawkey liked to play around a little bit. He loved to play around a bit. Someone told me today that the Sophie episodes, that Sophie mm -hmm. was based on his daughter, Bob Hawke's daughter. You know what? That wouldn't be surprising, would mm. it? Yeah. Wow, that's great intro. I should have Googled that before I actually said it. But hey, this can be a thread that just kind of maybe we'll confirm it in the next episode. Maybe we won't. In March, the Exxon Valdez oil spill happened. That was in Alaska's Prince William mm -hmm. Sound. 240,000 barrels of oil, Ugh. and that is a fascinating story. I've listened to some podcasts about that, and you, it's really hard to grasp the social impacts that exist still today, 31 years later, uh, you know, the domestic violence that came as a result of that, the unemployment that came as a result of that, the substance abuse, like all of this stuff that happened to this little community in Alaska because of this hideous, hideous thing that happened. Let me just mention too, in January, Young Talent Time was cancelled. <gasps> oh, who was your favourite? I feel like it went so much longer than that. The Blesters weren't a Young Talent Time family. <laughs> I'm, so, I'm so shocked by that. First you tell me you didn't go to Expo 88. 
Next, that the blesters, the blesters who put on concerts for their new neighbours. I know, I know. It's I'm not quite sure. Wow. Blesters, if you're listening, again, I'm shocked by the things I learn about the blesters. It was also around the time that this episode went to air that the National Aboriginal Health Strategy was announced. Now, this was a landmark strategy developed over a year by the Aboriginal-led National Aboriginal Health Strategy Working Group following extensive national consultations with governments and Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander individuals, organisations and communities. What I'm going to go through here is a really, really brief look at Australia's Indigenous health policies from 1989 to today. Emphasis, Mel, on brief, because this issue is huge and complex and I am not the person to break it down for you. I don't like to speak for people that I don't represent through lived experience. And so I'm going to just sort of explain this from my online research, but I I really, at the end, I'll, I'll talk about some places where you can go to find out more. So the NAHS, its key priorities were building community control of Aboriginal health services, increasing Indigenous people's participation in the health workforce, reforming the health system and increasing funding to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander health services, as well as like community health education prevention programs and improving essential services like access to clean water. A real key priority was that this is led by Aboriginal people themselves. That's interesting. And just when you said what those goals were, those later episodes where they're at the community, you can see them reflected, you know, for example, Alex works alongside Steve, Gary Foley's mother. Yeah. And they talk a lot about equipment. They talk a lot about funding. They talk, you know, and they're working side by side. It's not. And we see Mm. Terence's sort of patriarchal kind of stuff come out. Interesting. I'll let you get back to it. No, no, no. That's, yeah, it's all really, really interesting. And isn't it interesting that this happened in the same year, that this landmark report, which had been building up over a year, and it's the first time that this kind of policy was put together with so much leadership and consultation of Aboriginal people and Aboriginal communities. So in 1990, the Hawke government established the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Commission, so ATSIC, which we're probably all familiar with its demise, a government department answerable to both the Federal Minister for Aboriginal Affairs and an Aboriginal board member of commissioners. ATSIC assumed national responsibility for the implementation of the NAHS, but... In 1994, an evaluation committee appointed by Commonwealth Ministers for Health and Aboriginal Affairs found the health strategy had never been effectively implemented and that all governments had grossly underfunded initiatives in remote and rural areas. (sighs) Responsibility for Indigenous health was transferred from ATSIC to the Commonwealth Health Department. In early 2004 responsibility for the delivery of all Indigenous-specific programs was transferred to mainstream agencies and a whole-of-government approach was adopted. So this is now we're in the the, uh, Howard years. ATSIC and its service delivery arm, ATSIS, were abolished by the Howard government in 2005. And there was a lot of reports of corruption Mm. surrounding ATSIC. Because it's not really about health, I just kind of it's a story for another day. Doesn't that all sound bad on paper, though, that, you know, when the Howard government comes in, they take responsibility again for those services and that they abolish ATSIC? If you're just to see that on paper. Yeah, I think totally. Think, and God. I think there's a lot of complexities to it. And it's just, look, you know, you know my catchphrase, Mel. What's your catchphrase? It's complicated. <laughs> 
<laughs> That's our catchphrase for this whole podcast, isn't it? We actually haven't used it enough. Shall we just record a few now to Maybe. insert? And then start putting them on T-shirts and tote bags yeah, and sell them? It's, co- <laughs> it's complicated. It's complicated. It's complicated. It's complicated. <laughs> yes. It's complicated. Absolutely, Kim. It is complicated. <laughs> it sure is. In August 2006, the Northern Territory government established a board of inquiry to research and report on allegations of sexual abuse among Indigenous children. This was the Little Children Are Sacred report, which in 2007 was used as the catalyst for the highly politicised Northern Territory Emergency Response, aka the Intervention. In 2007, Commonwealth State, Territory and local governments made a commitment to work together to close the gap in Indigenous disadvantage. This led to the National Indigenous Reform Agreement, a significant step toward more coordinated action The first Closing the Gap framework outlined targets to reduce inequality in Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people's life expectancy, children's mortality, education and employment. Mel, I just want to finish by saying that this is essentially a short history of a series of problematic or poorly implemented policies. But what it doesn't look at is the strides that individuals and community healthcare services have made. So if you're interested in learning about that, Just go and Google Indigenous Health Service in your city or region because there will no doubt be one and you'll find out just the amazing work that they are doing. And you'll also find out whether or not you can support them through maybe a donation or maybe write a letter of support to your local MP because I think a lot of them rely on grants and not necessarily guaranteed permanent funding. So So crazy. But they are they're crucial. They are absolutely Mm, crucial mm. to local Indigenous services. Kim, thank you so much for that. That's all right. I'll link in the show notes to a couple of organisations that play a pretty key role in that Indigenous-led health policy. Great. Thank you, Kim. Mel, who's appearing on the Famous Faces board today? Do you remember the Famous Faces board from Sailor the Century? Yes, I do now. I know. It was like a little memory that popped into my head. (laughs) Remember how they used to go through and it was always like a bunch of Channel 9. And then there was the home viewer in the middle. That's right. (laughs) It'd be like a picture of a little kid. I wonder if anyone, let us know on Facebook if you were a home viewer on Sale of the Century. Okay. So, who who are we talking? Kim, I'm actually just going straight to Gary Foley because there's so much to talk about with him. Mm -hmm. I just didn't even want to mess around with anybody else. So, Gary Foley is one of the most significant people historically and culturally to appear on a country practice. I'd put him up there with Bob Hawke and those kinds Mm. of guesties. Mm. So, he Facebooked this year on July the 25th a picture of him and Di Smith saying, Around 1982, I received a phone call from Jim Davin, who I knew to be the creator and owner of the television series, A Country Practice, and he asked me if I would consider a guest role on the series. I told him I would on the conditions that I would select the sort of character I would play and I would expect control over the dialogue I would speak. He agreed. Even before hanging up the phone, I knew the sort of character I wanted to play. I would play an Aboriginal Christian pastor who would be passing through Wandon Valley. Not just any old garden variety of Aboriginal pastor, but rather one who would be a passionate advocate of land rights for his people. 
The background to my thinking was a major dispute I was having at the time with a small but influential group of American-style fundamentalist Christian evangelists (laughs) who were moving around to some remote Aboriginal communities in Central Australia. They were preaching to people in these communities an extreme right-wing perversion of Christian teaching that held land rights was the work of the devil and that people who advocated land rights were agents of Satan. Jeez. I mean, this is crazy, isn't it? He goes on to talk about the brawl that he had with these people and that was that being the impetus for the show. And he says, so when Jim Davin phoned me about a role on ACP, it was fortuitous timing and I saw an opportunity for revenge against American proselytizers. And so it was that I became an Aboriginal Christian pastor who was a passionate advocate of land rights on the most popular television show of its time. An unexpected and ironic fringe benefit of my appearance as (laughs) Pastor Steve Murray on more than nine episodes of ACP was that I found I had reached a far bigger mainstream audience in Australia with my message about land rights and justice than I ever had in all my previous political work. And the positive audience response was such that it was almost two years before I could get on public transport in Melbourne without being pestered for an autograph (laughs) or a political chat. Never heard from the lunatic fringe fundamentalists in Central Australia again. (laughs) I mean, that just says so much, doesn't it, about the power of ACP, but also about I can't think in this modern day how many creators of a show would say, yes, you can be on our Mm. show and yes, you can have right over the dialogue and yes, you can figure out your storylines. Like, I mean, it says a lot about James Davin, who we're going to be having on in Series 2. It's real forward thinking to sort of acknowledge that it's not for these white writers to to tell this story. Mm, Yeah. So who is Gary Foley then, Kim? Now, from the above, you might guess that he's one of Australia's most prominent Aboriginal activists. Gary's a Goomangar man. He's born in Grafton, New South Wales, yet raised mostly in Nambucca Heads. And the following info on his life I found both from his own website, which is called the Koori History Project, and we'll link to it Mm -hmm. in our notes, Paul Daly's journalism in The Guardian, and a little bit from Wikipedia. And I'm hoping we'll eventually have Gary on the podcast to confirm all of this. Now, Gary was kicked out of school at the age 15, not sure why, and he headed to Redfern a few years later to start an apprenticeship as a draftsperson, and that's when he got political. And as an activist, he was involved in all sorts of things, protesting the Springbok Rugby Tour of Australia in the early 70s, uh, the Bicentennial celebrations in 1988. Uh And he's also instrumental in setting up of the Aboriginal Tent Embassy in Canberra, the Aboriginal Legal Service and the Aboriginal Medical Service in Melbourne. And this is interesting too. He had a brief stint as a public affairs officer in the Department of Aboriginal Affairs in 1972 when he was just 22 and he was booted pretty much for speaking his mind by the sound of it. After that, the head of the department, a guy called Barry Dexter, tried to get ASIO to spy on Gary. Gary had links, I believe, and see, this is the thing, I I just hope that he can get to the Black Power movement Uh in Australia. And government had this idea that the Black Power movement in Australia had a list of people they wanted to assassinate. Gary has said there was no list. Yeah. You know, there absolutely was no list. But cutting along Shory Store, Barry Dexter tried to get ASIO to spy on Gary because of this. And many decades later, the two men made amends and Gary edited Barry's autobiography. Wow. What a great story. That's a mini series. Yeah, it it's totally is. As if that's not enough to pack into one life, Gary Foley is also an 
actor, obviously. He started out in an ABC comedy show that sounds a bit like a precursor to black comedy. It was called Basically Black, which began as a stage show by the National Black Theatre in Redfern. He went on to be in Dogs in Space with Michael Hutchins and a few other performances. Since then, though, Gary has taken an academic road. And Kim, I don't know about you, but I really love a mature age student story. And (laughs) Gary, I believe, went back to university at the age of 52. Oh, wow. Which Uh God, I just all went to university at the age of 52. See, I love these stories, Kim, because I'm 40 and I don't have Oh, there is so much time for you yet. I hope so because my dad... Like, he's got this wall. I've got three siblings and they've all got two degrees each. Oh, God. And I was the first Tate to do her HSC, the first to actually darken the doors of your university. Yeah. But I didn't make it all the way through. And so that's what my dad prizes. He's got this wall of all the degrees. Mm. No me on there. Does he have, like, posters of your plays on that wall? No. Well, he should. I'm not allowed on the wall because I don't have a degree. There's another wall with bits and pieces from me, but not the wall. Look, I have a degree. I have a bachelor degree. Yeah. But I also think that they're a little overvalued in some ways. Like I think getting two plays and probably what, by the end of next year, it'll be three plays put to stage that you have written, a book published, a highly (laughs) successful podcast. I mean, your achievements really- As a hustler. But (laughs) what's wrong with that? Like you can get all of the education of a university degree by reading books and listening to podcasts. It's just that you pay a lot of money and write a lot of assignments, and you get a piece of paper. <laughs> Here's my counter to that. And if I had children, why I would be making them get an undergraduate degree yeah. is I've had all these moments in my life where I've become sick of the hustle, and I've always want to go back. I, I, you know, I'd love to be a GP. That's why we, I've always wanted to, like, since I was a little girl. You've wanted to be Alex Fraser. I've basically wanted to be Alex Fraser or Terence. And yeah. it's just so much harder without an undergrad. You know, you've got to see mm. when you're an adult and you've got a mortgage and all that kind of stuff. So get your undergrad peeps so you can go off mm. and do a law degree or do a teaching diploma or something like that and have a different job and a like a profession. You know what I mean? Yeah. Because yeah, we don't, as radio people, have actual professions, Kim. I know what you mean. Like, but I also think I'm so much happier with what I do. I can't imagine doing anything other than this. Yeah. Shall we get back to Gary Foley, who has done so many things? So, at the uh-huh. age of 52, 53, from what I can see, he went back to university uh, where he studied, get this, Kim, history, cultural studies, and community science. This guy so is so big-brained. Yeah. He went on to tutor and become a senior lecturer in history and politics at Mundani Balak Centre at Victoria University in West Melbourne. He's now the professor of history at mm. that very same University. In 2013, he completed a PhD in history at the University of Melbourne, for which he was awarded the 2014 University of Melbourne's prestigious Chancellor's Award for Excellence. So he's Dr. Gary Foley now. I mean, what a life and what a career and what a huge contribution to Australian life. I wish there was some way we could quantify how effective those nine episodes on a country practice would have been because in each of the episodes that you and I have seen, he definitely pushes a political barrow. And, you know, with Steve in the ones that you'll watch eventually at the community, Mm -hmm. they even go into stolen generation. Like they do everything. That's great. I mean, his influence is extraordinary. And hopefully we'll get to talk to him next year. So good, Mel. Thank you. Thanks, Kim. Is it time for us to chat with the wonderful Di Smith now who spoke to us? Can we can we say where she was? Oh yeah. She was in her car with the windows up because that was the best sound we could get. All right, let's have a listen to Di. 
everyone knew that Anne and Penny and Grant and Shane had left the show. So, yeah, there was a lot of buzz around it and there was a lot of people going for it. And I knew that this description in the brief that you get was tall, beautiful, blonde, Dr. Alex is a city girl coming to the country. Now, that really isn't me, right? But I went for it anyway. Tall, beautiful, blonde, Dr. just actually sounds really uninteresting. Mm. <laughs> when your name has come up in our chats with people online, there are so many people have said, she was the first redhead I saw on television and I felt so seen, you know. You really resonated with people. Wow, that's amazing. Funnily enough, I was talking to a friend of mine last night, Jacinta, who was also a redhead, and she was, I think, about eight years old at the time. And she said, there were no other redheads, so you were mine, (laughs) (laughs) which is amazing. And I think it came about because I'd done a lot of theatre work up until that point. And Philippa Davin, who is James Davin's wife, she championed me because she'd seen me perform on stage. Do you remember getting the call to say you are Dr. Alex Fraser? I certainly do. It was my agent at the time, Barbara Lean, who very sadly is not with us any longer. But she, you pick up the phone, you get, Barbara Lean, is that Diane Smith? I've got news for you, she said. You're going to be Dr. Alex Fraser. And she said, because every time they picked up the phone, I was on the other end. (laughs) (laughs) It must have been a real game changer for you. If you're coming from theatre where... You can have your own life as a theatre actor. You can go to the shops without anybody knowing who you are and then go to the theatre at night, do your job and go home. How does that change when you're then cast in a lead role on a country practice? Completely. And it took a really long time to get used to it. (laughs) It was quite extraordinary. But the reaction was always positive, well, most of the time positive. You'd be walking along the street and people wouldn't say to you, oh, hello, are you? Or they'd be behind you and they wouldn't call out your character name. They'd just go, country practice, (laughs) very loudly. So you'd be, and I I began not to answer that because I would prefer them to go, oh, hello, how are you, aren't you? Oh, hi. But they'd be behind you and you just hear these people going, country practice, country practice. (laughs) And it was hysterical. I'm really interested in your Dr. Alex Fraser's romantic life because it, you know, now that we know that she eventually married Dr. Terence, that seemed like it was, you know, destined. But he wasn't your first romance in Wandon Valley. You had another romance before, I think, with Peter. Mm, definitely. We were cast together, Marco and Taylor and myself. So you were cast to have a romance? That's absolutely right. He was the high school teacher and I was the new doctor, the new anaesthetist mm-hmm. at the hospital. And that was the plan. We were going to be uh, an item. And what happened was, and if James Davin, if you're listening, I'm just going to tell the story. I think <laughs> the, the ratings after the, the famous four, they never quite got back to where, or it took a long time for them to get back to where they were. So after Mark and I had been on the show for a while developing this romance, it was decided that they wouldn't continue our contracts. Mm. And actually, we both lost our jobs. And then it was quite disappointing, as you might imagine. And then a a week later, you know, the machinations of television, I don't know what actually happens. James came to me and said, would you stay? And what we've decided to do is pair you up with Dr. Terence. Mm. So it was pretty shocking at the time and very upsetting because Mark is a fantastic 
actor and he's since had a, a wonderful career and he's so funny and so lovely. And can you imagine what it felt like having gone into yeah. something like that and then be unpaired mm. quite unceremoniously? Well, it's tricky. And also being paired with someone who is essentially your age and then going from that to saying, we think we're going to pair you with this man who, I mean, he must have been about 15 years older than you at least. Yes. But as you so rightly mentioned in your very first podcast, now we all look at, at, at Portagas and we go, oh my God, he was so hot. So you've got, and that's so right. So yeah. when it came to leave, I've always wondered, Alex would have been a great character to break Australia's heart with and kill off. Why did they not kill Alex off? It was a career decision. Mm-hmm. I could see that I could stay there if I wanted to and have a a great long run for as ha- however long the show went for. And mm-hmm. at the time, Terence and I were married, and I think they wanted us to adopt the little girl that we were taking care of. And it was that moment I went, if I do that, I'm really in this for the long haul. Mm-hmm. And I had to think about what I wanted to do with my career, as I think everybody did. Mm-hmm. I think it's the same reason that Penny and Annie and... Shane and Georgie, you get to a point where you go, okay, I'm either in here for the long, long haul and I stay forever or I branch out and I go back to the stage and I see what other roles are out there. So at the time I said, I want to go, but don't feel you have to kill me. I'm happy to come back for visits. (laughs) And what was it like coming back? The first time was wonderful because I'd been away And the shoot actually took place out in Broken Hill in an Indigenous community at the mission where Alex was working. And that was an extraordinary shoot. Danny Lawrence directed and it was, I think, the first time that the program had actually been so far afield. Mm. And we were working with some fantastic Indigenous people and the whole crew came and it was the middle of winter and it was freezing cold. But the storytelling was wonderful and, and not only important to telling the story we were about how much our Indigenous people needed medical attention remotely, but also that romantic pull of the the relationship Mm. splitting up Mm. because of two people on very different paths. So that was fantastic. How much of Alex evolved over the years with you? She's such a strong-headed character, and I find that a really positive thing. I've just watched the Sophie episode. Alex's expression of the challenges of taking on a marriage that has this baggage. I really appreciated the expression of that through Alex. Alex to me seems like very strong-willed and very prepared to speak her mind. And is that something that she was always going to be or is that a reflection of who you are as well? I think that was something she was always going to be. She was a woman in a man's world. She was an anaesthetist when there weren't very many women anaesthetists, certainly not in the country. And I think the when you're talking about that particular episode and what transpired in those episodes around and how it did nearly explode the relationship between Alex and Terence, mm. the writing was just so good. Mm. I remember that reconciliation scene where she's screaming at him, saying, where did you go, where did you go, and you left me behind. Just that, you know, it was so so right. You know, one thing I really love about your character is I love your relationship with Matron Sloan. I just love it. And in the episodes between Sophie dying and when Sophie is in town and Terence getting back, 
your chemistry and interactions with Matron Sloan are so beautiful and wonderful. Well, it's because we completely loved each mm. other. And Joan was, she's one of the most extraordinary actors of our time that people don't really know about. Mm. And she was classically trained and she had a sharp wit. And if things were working, she would tell you. And if they weren't working, she would also tell you. <laughs> but we had so much fun on set. Shane and Joan and I in that hospital, the, the three of us, that trio with all those hospital scenes would sparkle because we would, it was so easy. And there was any, if there was an opportunity for something funny to happen or a, a piece of wit to creep in, then we'd make it happen. Or, or Joan's famously grumpy matron Sloan, you know, we'd really go for that. Di, thank you so much. Oh, it's been so wonderful chatting you. with you. I loved her. I loved mm. her in the, I loved that interview. And in a week, we'll release our much longer chat with Di. But First, Mel, it is time for... It's time for Fashions of the Field. My pick this week is Shirley's shoplifting outfit. It's a wonderful <laughs> pattern-clashing patchwork of magenta, cyan and lavender. How about you, Mel? Well, Kim, I was going to pick it too because you know uh, what I loved about this outfit? You know, she's got the top that yeah. that is clinched at the hip, mm -hmm. which is such a great flattering yeah. shape for the middle-aged expanding waistline, you know? Mm -hmm. I just love I and I feel like all of the 80s was my mum in fabulous outfits. But in the opening credits, I think we see Alex and Dr. Terence walking and Alex has a gorgeous cinch-waisted dress and they really look like the ideal couple because Terence's hair is still that perfect, <laughs> perfect shade of silver. Mm -hmm. So that's my fashions of the field. All right. We will share those pics with you on our Facebook page. It's called A Country Podcast, just like us. Just like us. You can also follow us on Twitter. I'm at Melanie Tate. And I'm at Kim Lester. And we'd love it as well if you've got time to go and if you listen on iTunes, if you could rate and review mm. us and just let us know what you like or don't like about the show, we would love to hear from you. Who doesn't like something about this show? Well, someone didn't. Oh, someone really? said one of us annoyed them and I know it would have been me because you are the least annoying person. Well, actually, no, because my uh, one of my relatives said that I sit on the fence too much, so <laughs> it could have been them. <laughs> As opposed to somebody who, like, every week I worry about my growing conservatism. You know, I feel like I... I <laughs> You're becoming a boomer. <laughs> yeah, I'm enjoying the policeman on this show. What the hell is that about? So, Kim, next time we have our... I'm so excited. I'm really hoping that he hasn't listened to any episodes. <laughs> I don't think he had when we spoke to him, thankfully. <laughs> hope he still hasn't because I will go purple if ever I meet him in real life. And that <laughs> is the silver fox himself, Shane Porteous. Dr. Terence is on the show with us oh, next week. We were so fortnight. charmed by him. And we should probably point out too, it's our last episode of the season. But don't worry because we'll be back. We're only having a short break. Kim, what um, are we going to be watching next? Well, Mel, I hope you have some time set aside because we'll be watching the marathon six-parter from season six, Let the Sun Shine In. Kim. Episodes. <laughs> Why are we watching a six-parter? This is news to me right now. 
What is <laughs> Why, Kim? Why? These are the Bethany episodes. Now, this is a name that comes up on our page, but also on the A Country Practice fan page. I watched two today because I had a bit of time and I thought, there's six. I've got to watch them. I've got to get ahead. <laughs> and they're pretty harrowing. Like, they're really, Why? Really Who is tough. Bethany? What happens to her? It's all about child abuse. It is all about this oh, poor God, girl. Kim. I know. <laughs> but it is a huge turning point in Terence's story and it delves into his alcoholism. So it's worth doing. Season six, episodes 58 to 64. Yes, let the sunshine in. Kim, in the meantime, friends, pod friends, do what you can to spread the word about a country podcast. If you could tell your friends, if you're road tripping this summer, subject your whole car to us, give us a (laughs) shout out on social media. And now we'd better go so we can get cracking on those six episodes, Kim. My God. Bye, Kim. I'm off to watch some TV. Yes, see ya. In 1990, when I was 16, I entered a competition in TV Slate magazine to have dinner with the stars of a country practice. And I was a huge fan and I was really lucky enough to win. They flew me to Sydney and I had a, a dinner with Shirley and Frank and Cookie and Dr. Elliot and Luke. Um, that day and I used to collect country practice articles and snippets and things and I had all these scrapbooks so I took them along to the dinner and they loved them so much that then they invited me to Channel 7 the next day to have a tour of the set and then I met uh, Esme and a few of the other casts there and it was a really great day and a really great night and then about 18 months later I entered a, a very similar competition again and I was lucky enough to win again. 